Julie and I have never lived in the United States. Uh, Julie lived in, was born and raised in Canada. The only time we spent here any length of time was while we were in college in South Carolina. But we've never lived here. And, and yet we love America. We love South Central Pennsylvania. Um, we love the Amish country. We love the, uh, the farmlands. We love the people of the United States. And so we've never taken for granted uh, the great blessing that has been ours to represent churches like yours across the ocean where the need of the gospel is huge and you have provided for us so generously and bountifully over all of these years. We've been missionaries since 1984. We've been in South Africa since 1986. We spent 25 years, as you know, in the city of Cape Town building a strong team of church planters where around 30 churches have been started. 80% of those churches have their own national pastors. We have a pastoral training program that uh, trained up a strong generation of South African pastors and their wives. We have a camp and conference center, 450 acres on the north side of Cape Town, uh, where all year round camping takes place. It's supported by 20 of the, the churches in the Cape Town area. We thought we'd spend the rest of our lives there uh, in that great city, the burgeoning city of Cape Town, one of the most beautiful places on the planet uh, where there's a diversity of cultures and language groups. And God has blessed the efforts of his people partnering together with uh, you people and uh, grateful that uh, he has done a great work there. Well, uh, after about 25 years, we recognized that there was a need six hours east of us in a small cluster of towns called the Garden Route. It's called the Garden Route because they get rain throughout the year. It's not that it's tropical or anything, but it is green throughout the year. We have uh, the hill, the rolling hills and the mountains slap bang against the beautiful Indian Ocean. So you can imagine... Uh, what a place that is, what a privilege it is for us to live and minister there. We didn't go there because of its beauty. We went there because of the need for the gospel. And so now eight churches are underway along the garden route in three of the six predominant towns. Uh, the city of Nisna, the town of Sedgefield, and the city of George. Although we live in Nisna, where four churches are being started, we would like to see a couple more churches in the city of Nisna. Sedgefield's a little village. That we, that's where we started the first church. But the city of George has 300,000 people, and we only have three churches underway there, so there's much more to be done in the city of George. We are uh, constantly recruiting um, missionary couples to come and join us. I'm sharing with somebody that in times past, um, we were the young upstarts on the field, and we gathered around us a, a team of more mature and better, better educated, better experienced much wiser missionary couples when we were in Cape Town. Now the reverse is true. <clears throat> we're the old codgers on the team, and everyone else that's come to join us are millennials, uh, whatever that is. Um, but uh, we're, ha we're, having a, we're having a great time. But uh, the, I was asked a question. I've been asked this question uh, several times. Is Why are we still recruiting missionaries for South Africa? Aren't there enough there on the field? Uh, no, there's never enough. Uh, while the world is still recruiting for the great need in the 1040 window, uh, we recognize that while Southern Africa is still open for the gospel, we're going to recruit as many couples who God leads to come and join us there uh, and to make use of the opportunity while the doors are open. Uh, most everybody in South Africa speaks English. 
The economy is reasonably stable, the most stable on the continent. Crime and, uh, well, security is probably at the best. Uh, crime is of the least on the continent. And certainly down in the south where we live, crime is uh, more petty theft kind of a crime. Education is excellent in South Africa. The medical uh, uh, help or care is uh, first world. And the government doesn't even know that we exist. Why wouldn't you want to come and serve God there in a place like that? There are no Democrats and there are no Republicans. <laughs> Just people trying to serve God. So pray for the Garden Route. Thank you for your partnership. We, we count it a privilege. Uh, just an update on the uh, ministry facility, which we have been promoting in our prayer letters. You've seen it uh, there in the city of George. Uh, the reason for a ministry center is that I reached the conviction some years ago that we're not going to build any more, well, for the most part, you can never say never, but it's not our intention to build more um, buildings for individual church plants that uh, we raise up in South Africa. That's not my intention. Uh, we, I much more prefer to see these young churches in formation use multiple use facilities until the day they can, by their own sacrifice and their own commitment, uh, work towards their own facility in a, in a way that is conducive to their culture, to their community, and for their needs. For missionaries to do that in our context is really not that helpful any longer. So what we need, though, are places to rally together as, as a ministry team, a place where we can do outreaches from, and, and, and youth and sporting outreaches are, are, are a great opportunity for us. We need a place where we can have a biblical counseling center. What tremendous needs for, for biblical counseling in our modern world. We need a place where we can uh, have a training center to train men and women for ministry. Uh, we need a place where skills development can, can happen. As I said this morning, 70% of our population are in dire straits financially, and many of them have poor education and are not really well equipped for the job market. And so one of the great opportunities we can have is to upskill our local South Africans so that they can become more employable while at the same time reaching them for the gospel. So to have a ministry center, and the, 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 the country of South Africa gives us a tremendous facility, a vehicle in which to, to operate uh, non-profit organizations. You have them here. But in South Africa, they're, they're really easy to uh, acquire, and they are a helpful place for a ministry team, a church planting team, uh, to work financially and to be able to hold property and so on. And so in perpetuity, we are able to buy these buildings uh, to be used for as multiple-use facilities for church planting, for outreach, for leadership training, and so on. What a tremendous benefit. So uh, the, you can look at our recent prayer letters to see the George facility, the Inspire George facility. Uh, just a quick update. Uh, what we are still praying for there is we're just short about $18,000 to pay for the purchase of those two houses side by side. God has brought in all of the money except for that. And we owe it to Calvary Baptist Church in Lansdale, our sending church. They advanced us the remaining amount so that we could uh, close on those properties. Uh, and if you feel like they should gift that to us, you tell them. But they've already given us $75,000. So I think they've been pretty generous, don't you? And so uh, before we leave here at the, uh, in a month, we're hoping that uh, God would provide that remaining $18,000. So you can pray with us about that.
And then we've also been renovating these buildings to make them usable. You know, it's one thing to buy them, but you've got to make them usable. And uh, God has uh, worked through our team there during the COVID uh, lockdown. Uh, our team renovated one of the buildings where we have two classrooms, a counseling room, a coffee shop, and a kitchen. Um, but the important building just next door is what we would call the conference center, where we've knocked down all of the internal walls, and we're trying to get that space ready for larger meetings. Uh, and we're just short $15,000 on the renovation of that. The house has all been paid for. The renovation on, the, on the, the one house is all paid for. The one on the conference facility, we still need $15,000. So pray with us about that. I don't have a segue into my sermon, so I'll just dive right in. Have you ever wondered why your mother puts up with you? I have, over and over, especially now since she went to heaven four weeks ago today. My mother, 90-year-old Minnie, left her earthly dwelling and slipped into the presence of her Lord. As you know, due to the COVID shutdown, we were not able to be with her in South Africa as she fought her final battle with cancer. The sadness of not being near her in these last six months has been eclipsed by the joy of knowing that she is with her Savior, the one whom she loved dearly. Her confident faith in God and His provision for her prepared us for the day that she would go to heaven. We feel very sorry for us, but we are extremely happy for her. You see, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. God's Word tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We will see her again someday, probably very soon. So I've had plenty of time to think about my mom these past four weeks, wondering why she ever tolerated my naughtiness and my foolishness. She loved to joke around, and I would tease her quite a bit, and she handled it well. And now I get to remember with affection the lifelong influence that she's had on me and on my character. I'm sure I've disappointed and even hurt my mother on multiple occasions during the 59 years of my life. Not intentionally, of course, but I'm sure I've brought her enough heartache and pain for her lifetime. Yet remarkably, she seemed to like me anyway. She never seemed to hold any of the bad stuff to my account. Mothers bring us into the world with tremendous agony and sacrifice, and yet they don't complain very much about it. Even though in a moment of exasperation they've been known to say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out again. <laughs> yet they never actually do it. Instead, they do everything in their power to nurture and sustain their children and to make every sacrifice necessary to keep them alive. Mothers practice an enduring, unconditional love towards their offspring, although there is sufficient evidence to confirm that some mothers do eat their young. You've got to love mothers. And I most certainly love and miss mine, as I reminisce before you this evening. It is often said that Faithful fathers provide an image of God to their children, and that's true. But I want to suggest this evening that mothers do at least that and probably more. 
The person who knew me better than anyone else on the face of the earth loved me in spite of myself. And as I consider that truth, it causes me to wonder what God thinks about me. Yet I'm not exactly certain how much I know about how much he knows about me. And maybe that's a good thing. From time to time, I'm honest enough to catch just a horrifying glimpse of the ugly part of myself. And then I wonder how God, the one who knows me better than any human could ever know me, how he processes that information. I try to fool myself. I might even be able to fool you. I most certainly fooled my mother, and I think I have even fooled Julie a couple of times. But here's the unvarnished truth. I can never fool God. And just in case you're wondering, neither can you. Sometimes you just don't want to pray or read the Bible or think about God. Because when you look in the mirror, you feel like a hypocrite. You say to yourself, you're a big disappointment. Or, you ought to be a lot better by now. We've all felt that way from time to time. And I imagine that some people in this room feel that way right now. Perhaps it's been a hard week for you. I can certainly attest to the fact that it's been a hard six months. Now maybe you're feeling a little bit of a failure. Someone captured this feeling in one simple sentence. They said, we run from God rather than to Him because we know our own hearts all too well. And the problem is, we know His barely at all. I probably don't need to spend much time convincing you that you are a sinner. I guess you already know that. I'm sure you have let yourself down to some degree this week. So when last did you give yourself a good talking to? Well, that's precisely what Psalm 103 is all about. David is talking to himself. It's a prayer, or really it's a hymn, actually, by David in which he talks to his own soul and reminds himself to bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. From time to time, we need a good dose of Psalm 103 to wash out that complaining spirit and replace it with a heart of gratitude to the Lord. Patch the pirate referred to it as a gratitude attitude. That describes Psalm 103. Some have called this the greatest of all the Psalms. Spurgeon called it a Bible within itself, and he said it contains too much for a thousand pens to write. G. Campbell Morgan gives it the high accolade of being the most perfect song of pure praise in the Bible. We know from the title of this psalm that David wrote these magnificent words. He wrote wrote them late in his life when he was able to look back and speak from experience about the tender mercies of the Lord. Psalm 103 stands a little apart from the other psalms written by David. It is less intensely personal than most. It's less harassed by enemies and personal guilt. But the personal note is there. 
And David is soon speaking for us all. And remember, it's more a hymn than a prayer. We can outline Psalm 103 in this way. In verses 1 through 5, he begins with a very personal theme of worship. David reviews the mercy of God to him. He begins by calling us to wholehearted, intentional praise of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. After that intentional expression of praise by the psalmist in verses 1 and 2, there are five blessed benefits of the Lord that we must not forget in verses 3 through 5. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good. Then in verses, right at the end of the psalm, in verses 19 through 22, as David closes the psalm, he concludes with a more universal plea for all created beings to praise the Lord. Verse 19 summarizes this final section of the psalm this way. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. In that final section of the psalm, we have the doctrine of the sovereignty of God clearly revealed and discussed in a special way. And it's similar to those, similar to those passages that speak of the sovereignty of God, like Isaiah chapter... Yes, I said Isaiah, not Isaiah. Isaiah, by the way, when President Trump talked about 1 Corinthians, he wasn't wrong. Everyone knows that all British people say 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Where you get first and second from, I have absolutely no idea. All right, back to the point. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 says this, I am God, and there is no other. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35 God does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? How about Job 23, verses 13 and 14? But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me. Finally, Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. These passages, together with the final four verses in Psalm 103, plainly assert that God is sovereign over the universe, that he rules all things, that his throne is settled and established, that it cannot be shaken by the affairs of men. His kingdom rules over all. To say that God is in charge of all that happens to me, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, the positive and the negative is one thing. But it's another thing to accept that, he, that he, as he works out the details of my life by allowing the heartaches and the pain and the disappointments, he is doing this for my good and for his glory. Yet sometimes we need more information. When there is trouble, we want to know who is running the show. That's what the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is all about. It answers the question of who's in charge. 
That's precisely the question answered in verses 6 through 18, the midsection of this great psalm. Here we are given a description of the one who is in charge. As David is coming to terms with the sovereignty of God, he reveals seven liberating truths about God's heart. Join me as we take a closer look at verses 6 through 18. In some ways, these glimpses into the heart of God might even make you think of your mother. They certainly make me think of mine. First, we learn in verses 6 and 7 that he loves to help the needy. This is the heart of God. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The oppressed are those who can't help themselves. In the Old Testament, the word especially referred to widows and orphans, foreigners and the poor. When we are tempted to take advantage of others because we are strong and they are weak, God says, wait a minute, consider what you are doing. And as you know, God always takes the side of the weak. God keeps his eyes on the helpless, and when others harm them, he moves to balance the scales of justice. There are times when this is hard to believe, especially in our day of injustice and wickedness. We find it difficult to fathom the cruelty perpetuated by ungodly men and women against the unborn, for instance, or the evil of those wicked men who traffic and abuse vulnerable women and children. In the midst of all this wickedness, it is sometimes difficult to discern where the righteousness and justice for the oppressed is. Yet this truth stands like a solid rock for the believer. We trust our great God to act in righteousness even though we cannot see beyond the calamity of sin that is evident in our ungodly world. The sad reality is that if history is a book. We haven't reached the final chapter just yet. And I have to say, there's likely more trouble to come. We're somewhere near the end, but we're not there yet. But this we know. God is still on his throne, and he remains sovereign over all. Eventually, in his perfect time, God will bring everything to light and he will judge with impartiality. In that day, there will be no hiding, no excuse-making, no bribes, no way of escape. All of you who labor to bring comfort and help to your needy community in Lebanon, all of you who stretch out a helping hand to those less fortunate than you, you must know that justice is coming to this world at some point, right? But it's not here yet. As we await the return of our Savior in the air, we remain hopeful and expectant that this mortal must put on immortality, that on that great getting up morning, our faith will be sight, and the challenges of this life will be over for those who love God and love His appearing. But until then, until the bridegroom returns for his bride. The point of this psalm is that God helps the needy. 
And in many ways, you are the needy. Maybe not materially, but certainly spiritually. If you're honest, you know that you can't do anything apart from His grace and mercy. You are powerless without the enablement of God's Spirit. You need God, and we are reminded that He is on your side, and that's a great place to start. God loves to help the needy. And then we learn in verse 8 that He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, we read. And I want you to see the four great attributes of God in this verse. First of all, the Lord is compassionate. He pardons us. Secondly, the Lord is gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. Thirdly, the Lord is slow to anger. He is patient with us when we fall. And finally, the Lord abounds in mercy. He loves us. He is merciful towards us more than we can imagine. Oh, there is no love like God's love. When He saves us, He saves us completely. When He forgives, He forgives all our sins. When He sets us free, we are free indeed and forever. Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, takes the phrase abounding in mercy and offers this application. I'm quoting, All the world tastes of his sparing mercy. Those who hear the gospel partake of his inviting mercy. The saints live by his saving mercy. They are uh, preserved by his upholding mercy. They are cheered on by his consoling mercy. And they will enter heaven through His infinite and everlasting mercy. I like that. Six kinds of mercy in just one sentence. That's plenteous mercy indeed for anyone who needs it. He loves to help the needy. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. And thirdly, He tempers His anger. Verses 9 and 10. He will not always accuse us or strive with us, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us or punish us according to our iniquities. Have you ever known anyone who loved to argue? Maybe it's your spouse. We all know people who love to keep a quarrel going because they're so angry. God is the opposite of that. He's not like that at all. He is willing to end the quarrel and welcome us back home, kind of like your mother does. Sometimes the real problem is that we want to keep fighting him. But listen, he is more ready to forgive than we are to be forgiven. When we forget to pray, he remembers to feed us. When we forget to give thanks, he sends us restful sleep. When we wallow in sin, He sends His Holy Spirit to convict us. When we refuse to give, He keeps on giving still. When we fail, He, when we fall, He lifts us up. When we disappoint ourselves and others, He still calls us His children. He even blesses those who don't believe in Him. An unbeliever like Richard Dawkins writes a book called The God Delusion and sells a boatload of copies along the way, merrily debating every religious type person he could find. 
He is clever, witty, he's a gifted wordsmith, widely read, quick with a comeback, and completely committed to debunking religion of every type, and even more committed to the concept that God is simply not necessary. But you can't help but notice the mercy of God here. Instead of crushing him like an empty eggshell, the Lord feeds him and nourishes him and gives him health and love and life. It is the long-suffering of God that allows Richard Dawkins to deny him. And why would God show such kindness to someone utterly dedicated to eradicating his influence in the world? Because our God is not in the least intimidated by Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris. I think of them as part of the atheist artillery, the diabolical trio. Those foolish men shoot at God on ground that he provides for them. And the fact that God withholds punishment from his enemies, that too is evidence of his mercy. For Romans 2 verse 4 says that God's kindness leads towards repentance. Now, so far we've seen three liberating truths about the heart of God. He loves to help the needy. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. And he tempers his anger. But number four, he forgives all our sins. Verses 11 and 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Consider for just a moment the greatness of God's love. Astronomers tell us that the farthest known light source from the earth is 10 billion light years away. That means light starting from that source, a quasar, would take 10 billion years traveling at the speed of light to arrive on the earth. By contrast, the nearest star is only four light years away from us. That's four years traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. Compare that with the fact that light from the sun reaches the earth in little over eight minutes. So even the nearest star is incomprehensible to our minds. And if you were able to use something called icon, uh, ion drive propuls- propulsion, sorry, I'm not a scientist or a physicist or a rocket scientist for sure, but if you use something called ion drive propulsion, you could reach the nearest star in a modern spaceship in only 81,000 years. That puts it into perspective for me. You can turn it around any way you like, and you're left with two inescapable realities. First of all, we only live in a tiny corner of the universe. And second, the universe is enormously vast beyond our comprehension. But God's love is greater, vaster, larger, deeper, longer, broader, and bigger in all dimensions than the universe itself. Get in a rocket equipped with any sort of sci-fi system you can imagine. Fly at warp speed if you like. Go as far as you can go to the end of the known universe and beyond. And when you've gone as far as you can go, look up and smile because God's love is still going. 
you'll never reach the end of it. Consider also this evening the magnitude of God's love. Let's suppose you want to go east until you finally reach the west. So you take off from Lebanon, PA, in a hot air balloon. You get the benefit of the jet stream, which takes you across the Atlantic Ocean. And when you eventually land on the westernmost coastline of Africa in Casablanca, Morocco, you jump in your Toyota Land Cruiser and drive across the continent heading east, across the Sahara Desert, until you come to the easternmost African city, Djibouti, on the Gulf of Aden. There you hop on a freighter that takes you across the Indian Ocean where you eventually squeeze between Australia to the south and Papua New Guinea to the north, narrowly escaping shipwreck on those tiny Australasian islands. Now you have to cross the vast Pacific Ocean. After you replenish the supplies on the Hawaiian Islands, your ship finally puts ashore in the port of Los Angeles. From there you jump in your Chevy Suburban and drive east across the great mountain ranges and plains of North America, arriving back in Lebanon, PA. Besides being exhausted, you have circumnavigated the globe, but what have you proved? Among other things, you have proved that no matter how far east you go, you keep going east, and you're never going to find west. The two shall never meet. The farther east you go, the farther you are from the west. And I think that best illustrates the magnitude of God's love. And here's the good news, or should we say the great news, for all the sinners of the world. When God forgives, He removes our sins and lifts them up and He takes them away. He puts them so far from us that we could never find them if we searched for them a thousand years. They are gone forever. God will never use my sins against me again. Even Satan can't bring them back. I hope, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you never live in a constant mode of guilt. There's forgiveness for any sins committed now that you, your sin has been forgiven you by Christ. You should never live in guilt. Learn from the failure. Allow the guilty feeling to drive you back to a right relationship with God, but don't live in a constant state of guilt. God's way is far better than that. He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, never to lay it to our account again. Here's another liberating truth about the heart of God. Number five, in verse 13, He understands our weakness. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. I never really understood this verse until I had children myself. Earthly fathers and mothers, however imperfect they may be, point us upwardly to our heavenly Father. When an earthly father has done his job well, he makes it easy for his children to believe in their heavenly Father. Our children learn that we do not worship a god of stone or an empty idol or a remote deity or an impersonal machine in the sky. We serve a Father God who knows our weakness and demonstrates His love toward us anyway. 
The great physician knows our weakness, and he understands our fears. And when we can't go on, he carries us on his back. He loves to help the needy. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. He tempers his anger. He forgives all our sins. He understands our weakness. And number six, he remembers that we are dust. Verses 14 through 16. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. Well, here's a truth we understand, especially in this season of the year. Yesterday's green leaves soon will turn to beautiful autumn shades and then to brown. It's a law of nature that the green leaves of spring ultimately end up in a pile on your lawn. So why do the leaves lose their green? There's a scientific explanation having to do with the loss of green chlorophyll, but that simply means the leaves are slowly dying. Their beauty comes from their death. Who remembers each leaf? Not even the tree does. One by one, the leaves fall to the ground where they disintegrate and they return to the soil from which they came. No one names them or numbers them or even thinks about them. It's the way of nature, the way God arranged the changing of the seasons. Each time I see my reflection in the mirror, I'm surprised at how shiny gray the hairs on my head and on my face have become. Some turned gray and some turned loose. When God puts gray in my beard, it's like the leaves turning autumn shades in, their, in the fall. It's God's way of reminding me that I won't be here forever. My days are numbered. Every now and again, I run across a bit of cemetery humor, and I'm a little bit warped that way. It makes me chuckle. I saw a billboard not so long ago, sponsored by a cemetery that said, Slow down, we've saved a place for you. I'm sure they have. See, if that's all there is, if we are here today and gone tomorrow, if that's the end of the story, then there really isn't much hope. But there is something you should be reminded of this evening, something to lift your spirits during this most challenging season. If you don't have anything else to be thankful for this year, the year that robbed you of much, in the words of Queen Elizabeth II, your Annus Horribilis. Well, here's something you can hang your hat on. Your hope is not in man. Your hope is not in anything man can do. Your hope is not in therapeutics or vaccines. Your hope is not in your conservative government. Here it is. Your hope is in the everlasting God. Your hope is in Jesus. That pretty much says it all. However, there is one final liberating truth about God's heart that we discover in this psalm. Number 7, verses 17 and 18. God links us with eternity by linking us with himself. God links us with eternity by linking us with Himself. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him. 
and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. Just a word for anyone who may be here this evening who doesn't know Jesus personally. The idea here of fearing God comes when you recognize that you are a sinner in need of the Savior. You recognize that your sin in your fallen condition as a human being is an affront to a righteous, holy God. The same God who sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to the earth to be 100% man while at the same time retaining 100% of His deity, to live a sinless life and ultimately to be the sacrificial lamb on the cross. To die on the cross, to shed His blood so that at that divine moment, all of the sin of all people that would ever be born on the planet earth would be atoned for, would be paid for in full by that perfect God-man's blood. Jesus did on the cross for you what you could never do for yourself. You say, that's marvelous, but how does this impact me? When I was 15 years old, growing up in a religious society, Believed that Jesus was the Son of God who died for the sins of mankind, but until I recognized that He had died for me personally, I couldn't find salvation in Him. And I realized He died for Dave Rudolph, and all I must do is repent of my sin, admit my sin, turn from my sin, and trust Jesus by faith as my Savior. That's the fear of God in action. When I surrender my soul to Jesus Christ as my only Savior. My friend, if you're here without Christ tonight, it is my desire, God's desire, that you settle that with Him tonight. Hey, there's nothing we can do about our frailty. We come from the hand of our Creator with a stamp on it, fragile, handle with care. We are like the dust devils that blow across the deserts out west. We make a big scene and then we disappear. Try as we might, we can't cancel our humanity. Nothing can change what we are. Vitamins and exercise and clean living may slow down the process. Positive thinking may improve your mood. But for all of us, the end is the same. The fountain of youth runs dry. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. Psalm 103 offers us one strong ground of comfort that lifts us up above the transitory nature of life. It is the but of verse 17, but from everlasting to everlasting. That blessed connecting conjunction that changes everything is the one word that offers an eternal contrast between the fading flower and the everlasting God, between our mortality and God's eternity. That one word, but, contrasts life on earth with life in heaven. It stands at the demarcation between this life and the next. Here is our real hope of life that never ends. God is tender in mercy. He is unfailing in love. He is abundant in grace. Someone has said, That life without Christ is a hopeless end, but life with Christ is an endless hope. 
And this endless hope is not only to us, but to our children's children. What do you plan to leave your children? A vast estate? A large inheritance? A huge life insurance policy? That's just not enough. Whatever we may say about earthly possessions, they pale next to the privilege of passing down a godly heritage, a tapestry of truth, a pattern of believing that our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren can claim as their own. A few days after he became a Christian, four weeks before he passed, my father shared regret with me that he had nothing to leave me and my sister by way of an inheritance. You see, my dad had lost everything when he left the country of Rhodesia in southern Africa to move to South Africa. All of his wealth was taken from him. The last 20 years of his life, he lived a pauper by the graces of Julie and me as we cared for mom and dad right through to the end of their lives. As he shared that regret and said, I've got nothing to leave you, I said, wait a minute. You've just bowed your knee to Jesus Christ. He had just done that a day or so before. I said, Dad, you have left me and our descendants a great legacy, a great heritage. What an investment. And I will do all I can to repeat as many times as I can that Eddie bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in the nick of time and found grace in his time of need. I will tell his grandchildren, I will tell his great-grandchildren if I'm still alive, I'll tell his great-great-grandchildren the story of Eddie. What a heritage, what a legacy, what an inheritance. In a transient and passing world, Where everything fades away, we have the promise that we are linked indelibly to the future. Even after we're gone, we count on the faithfulness of God to our children and to our children's children. This, too, is the mercy of God. Here's what Psalm 103 is telling us. We are richer than we think. We are more blessed than we know, and we have more than we realize. We frail mortal sinners are rich in the mercy of God. We have found that mercy, or rather that mercy has found us in the cross of Jesus Christ. All that we believe and all that we have and all that we hope for is found in the cross of Christ. Go to the cross and you will find your way back to God. Are you weak? So am I. Are you needy? So am I. Are you guilty? So am I. Are you frail? So am I. Are you like dust? So am I. And God says to us, His weak, needy, guilty, frail, dusty children, I know you through and through. And I love you anyway. Come to me. Rest in me. Make me your rock. These are the liberating truths from the heart of God this evening. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace. 
Thank you for the reminder, even from the depths of the Old Testament pages, of your sovereign watch care over your children, whom you love with an everlasting love. Might every soul under the sound of these words this evening be encouraged that if they have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in Jesus, that they are secure forevermore. Help them deal with the guilt that has smudged their relationship with you, their fellowship with you. Help them to get that sorted tonight. And if there's someone here that is longing for hope of eternal life, might you bring them to your Son, our Savior, tonight before it's too late. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.